Good morning, everybody. I hope uh, hope you're having a, a great Memorial Day weekend. Um, I'm Shannon. I'm the executive pastor here. I am filling in for Steve this morning. Uh, Steve is, uh, I, I guess his mom is visiting from Wisconsin, and uh, they went up to uh, Victoria, Vancouver Island, uh, to take the weekend together. So um, you can be praying for them for their travels, um, but he will be back next week. Um, here, as we uh, uh, start out, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, uh, we just want to approach you first and foremost uh, this morning as we gather together. Um, well, thanks, thanks for this body. Uh, thank you for um, people that are committed to you in a way that we can uh, come together and sharpen each other uh, through your word and through your spirit. Uh, we pray that uh, as I speak, Lord, that you would move me aside, uh, that your will be done with uh, your intentions for each and every one of us. Uh, may your spirit be active and... Um, let us pray that uh, you would use us as uh, catalysts uh, to usher your spirit in and that your presence here would be felt this morning. Uh, we lift all that up to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, we're going to jump right in. I'm going to uh, move around a little bit and, uh, um, well, we'll just see where this goes. By way of review, we're in the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't been here before, we're, we're work- plugging our way through Mark. Um, in the last two weeks, we've covered a few stories. Um, two weeks ago, uh, Steve talked about um, the story of Jesus calming the storm um, where they were crossing the Sea of Galilee and the winds came up and um, he, he supernaturally calmed that in a show of his power over nature and creation. And then last week, uh, he talked about the story of the demoniac where Jesus showed his power over the spirit world by casting out a legion of demons out of a, uh, a man. Both of these events illustrate Jesus' supremacy and power as he continues his ministry. Uh, and today we'll, we'll progress in that as well. Uh, before we get to scripture, before we get to some of my, uh, my intro, um, just for this next minute, I want you to remember a phrase. Buy their net income. All right? So remember the phrase, buy their net income. That's the answer to a question How do we know the disciples were rich fishermen? By their net income. (laughs) Sorry. It does make me feel good when I hear the groan, so thanks. Um, Just a silly way for me to segue into something else. Um, I'll give you the answer first. Uh, It does provide a little bit more interest and engagement um, in what amounts to a stupid joke. Um, but I'm going to do the same thing with, our, with the sermon today. Um, I figured, shoot, why don't we, instead of me putting uh, you know, a whole sermon together and then asking some questions at the end to look wise and like I know what I'm talking about, I'm just going to ask the questions to begin with and we'll just close it that way. How about that? I mean, no, we'll, we'll continue on with the message. But I do want to give you guys the closing questions before we start so that you have the context for the message and where we're going and can ponder that and think through that as we talk. So um, uh, we're talking through Mark 5, 21 through 43. And the questions I have for you first is, in these stories, um, who do you identify with? There's a whole cast of characters here. Who is it that, that strikes a chord with you? And maybe it's more than one person. Uh, it might be a combination of people. But who is it that you identify with? And the second part of that, because most of these people are around Jesus or are approaching Jesus or coming to him for something or he comes to them, um, is how do you approach Jesus? So hold on to those questions. I'll ask them again throughout, and we'll come back to that at the end. But um, those are our closing questions. Um, and before we get into the scriptures, um, in asking you who you identify with, we're just going to go through some of those characters. And I, I gave them... Sorry, this is just me. Stupid, silly names. Um, I was going to be like person A, person B, person C, and I thought, wow, B is actually kind of a, a name, and so is D, and J, and K, and... Oh. Anyway, <laughs> this is my attempt to be creative here. So um, these are generic names. These aren't the names of them in the story, but this is to help give us 
just uh, we can look at the description of who that person is, who that what their, that character is like, um, without having the stigma of who that actually is in the story. So it uh, just gives us a little more um, anonymity here, um, and I'll give you the, the names of them in, ju- in just a second here. Um, also, don't get caught up in gender things. Um, uh, we knew a guy named D. He came and spoke at our men's retreat. Um, it doesn't have to be a woman, so just don't get caught up in the gender of those names. Um, consider it like Shannon, where it could go either way. <laughs> So let's go through these. Uh, the first one is, is B. Uh, B is someone who's, who's just present. They're in kind of engaged on a general interest or a curiosity level in what's going on around them. Uh, they might be curious, but they're really they're kind of somewhat affected personally by other people's tragedy or, or circumstance. They're detached, um, uh, just kind of a, a looking at things from the outside. D um, would be a simpler person. Um, they have a lot of potential, uh, but they're sometimes prideful. Uh, there's a lot of room to grow um, and learn there. Um, they can be a little bit reactionary, uh, maybe not ahead of the game, but uh, tend to, to kind of play catch up on things. Um, and I would probably call this person um, someone who's kind of common to what most people are like, right? Um, they're pretty generic. Um, so I, I think there's aspects of that that a lot of, like, a lot of us can identify with. Then we have Jay. Uh, Jay is responsible and respected, um, a logical person, um, but in spite of that, loves family dearly and, and he's, is even willing to prioritize family over their own image. Uh, they're willing to be humble. Uh, in the story, Kay, Kay is worn out and at wit's end. Uh, Kay is broken both physically and emotionally. Um, there's a lot of physical suffering going on. Um, and because of some of the circumstances surrounding that is, is looked down on by nearly everybody. Um, that uh, K is, is void of contact or, or affection, um, and I would classify this person as desperate. L. L has no hope or future. L's life is going nowhere. Um, L's a drain on resources and a, is a reminder of uh, pain for those around that person. Um, M, M is task or job oriented. Uh, M is kind of just going through the motions in spite of being uh, focused on a task. Uh, they're just doing what they got to do. Um, and they're really, in some ways, a little bit like B, but they're, they're unaffected by the harsh realities of life um, or the harsh realities of the situation they're in. And uh, M could be possibly jaded and cynical uh, as well. So as you look over that list, um, you just pick out the points that you might identify with. Okay, well, where am I kind of like some of these, these folks? Um, and again, maybe it's one, maybe it's multiples. Um, but which one are you like? Um, we'll throw the, the, the actual characters up there so that you know who to look at in the story. Um, but uh, B is uh, the onlookers. There's crowds in these stories, uh, people that are present that are there for a purpose. They're, they're somewhat engaged, but it's not on a super deep level. Um, they're there. Um, D is uh, the disciples. D for disciples. I thought it was cool. Um, and uh, we know from much of Scripture that disciples came from simple background, um, but Jesus chose them because they have a lot of potential. And... Um, they're kind of all over the map. They, they have a lot of pride, um, but they have a lot of room to, to uh, learn and grow, and they have a, a bright future ahead of them. And um, I think that would describe most of us um, uh, being somewhat, somewhat like that. Jay is Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Um, because of his position, he's well-respected, well-known in the community, and chooses family first. Uh, Kay is... Uh, the sick woman in this story. She is a woman that's been hemorrhaging. She's had a, a, this disease for 12 years and is just suffering because of it. She's exhausted all of her resources to try to deal with this issue. Uh, Elle is the young girl um, who is on her deathbed. Um, and we find out at the end of the story, I'll give it away, um, she dies. Um, actually, middle of the story. Um, there's no hope or future there because she's on death's door. M, 
uh, is our mourners. Um, the mourners in the story, they, they're focused on a task, um, and they're kind of just going through the motions. They're there, and, and you'll see some of their responses to, to the things that happen. So as we read through, um, just keep, keep track of that list in your mind um, and, and look for the ways that they engage with Christ uh, as he uh, walks through a couple of interesting episodes with us. And I will say, um, as we do read through this, um, there's a lot of challenges for me in this. Um, and so I'll ask some questions and things that, some things that I've wrestled with, and um, we'll see if it maybe addresses some of your questions as well. So uh, you can join me if you want to read through it um, in your own Bibles uh, in Mark 5, 21 through 43. And here I'll read it for you as well. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be, may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd of followers and um, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out, of, out from him, immediately turned around, um, turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who's touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So we're going to highlight a few, uh, a few of the passages here. We'll, we'll dip back through things. And then I just have a few comments about some of the sections and then some questions to ask as well. Um, but let's, let's start back at the beginning again. When Jesus had crossed to the other side of the boat, I'm sorry, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him and he was beside the sea. So if you think back a little bit um, to uh, the story of Jesus calming the storm, um, Jesus was in or near uh, Capernaum and uh, was traveling to the other side of the Sea of Galilee um, to the, uh, the, the Gentile side, uh, the Decapolis and in the midst of their travel, uh, this storm came up. Now, in that story, it talks about a number of boats going with them. Uh, so there was a, a small fleet that, was, that had headed out. Um, and uh, a little bit of speculation on my part, but uh, I would imagine as the seas came up, some of the smaller boats probably were like, e we're going to zip back and we'll meet you when you get back. Um, some of them probably proceeded on, but a few of them, I'm sure, turned around. Some of them were probably present during that miracle where he calmed the storm. Um, but regardless, I'm sure that there was a uh, re uh, part of this return fleet that came back and was able to share what had happened out in the middle of the water um, with the people in or near Capernaum. So when Jesus shows up, 
um, back again after uh, dealing with the demoniac on the other side. When he shows back up, uh, there's a whole crowd anticipating his return. Um, they can't wait for him to get back because he's, he's demonstrated even more aspects of his power. And um, I'm sure some of the folks there uh, want to hear his teaching. Some of the folks are desiring healing and some just want to see what kind of crazy stuff is going on here. So there's this increased anticipation of Jesus' return. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be, be made well and live. And he went with them. Now, I, I, I picture this scene, uh, and I don't know this is, this is how it happened, but um, you know, we don't know the, the, the time frame with which some of these events took place, but um, these folks are, are crowded around at the edge of the sea, and I imagine uh, them coming back in the boat, and these people are in, in, in anticipation, and um, either Jesus may get off at a, a dock or actually just jump into the water and come wading ashore, and these folks are there just waiting for him. And it's clearly a large crowd by some of the things that take place there. Um, and in spite of all, all of the people there seeking Jesus, Jairus, uh, the synagogue ruler, is able to, for one reason or another, kind of take priority of the situation. Now, maybe he's the first one out at this crowd and greets Jesus as he comes up. Um, or, or maybe because of his respected position, people part so that he can get to Jesus. But in spite of all the need in this group, Jairus takes priority. And uh, let's talk about Jairus for a second. Um, We know that his daughter is sick. We know that she's on death's door. And he's taken an enormous risk. Um, If you're a parent and you have a sick child, you don't want to leave their side, particularly one that is near death. Um, so he takes this risk in, in, in trying to balance it. Okay, what, what's the right decision here? Do I stay with my daughter and maybe she gets well, but maybe I, I, I'm with her as she lives out her last moments? Or do I go take a stab at finding this guy that can perform miracles and if I can get to him, maybe he'll be willing to heal her even though he has to travel here? That's got to be a really tough decision to make. Um, but he, that's the one he made, that, that the risk of missing his daughter um, and missing what's happening there um, is worth it to, to have the potential for healing. Um, also, uh, Jairus is a synagogue ruler, which um, if you're wondering what is a synagogue ruler, um, synagogue rulers were actually the first executive pastors, I'll have you know that. Um, but really, he's not a priest. The synagogue ruler is not a priest. He's a, an administrator of the synagogue. So he's the one that, that puts the structure together for the worship that happens at the synagogue. Um, it's an important position. Um, you can't do without these guys, right? Steve, you listening on the recording? Yeah. Um, but uh, because he's so present in the community, um, uh, He's well-respected. He, he is um, an important person there. And as, as he comes up to Jesus, he, he has the weight of his position on him. Um, now, again, because he's associated with the priests and he's associated with the synagogues, I'm sure that it's not lost on him some of the divisiveness between Jesus and um, the other, the, the, the Pharisees, uh, the, the other priests, the scribes, um, where there's this back and forth going on and, and they're jealous of Jesus. I'm sure that he's not unaware of that. Um, but he still comes with the weight of the synagogue on him, with the weight of his position, and falls at Jesus' feet seeking help. That, that his position, his image, um, is not nearly as important as what he's seeking. Jesus goes with him, and uh, I I think, and we'll get back to some of this, I think of that whole crowd that's with Jesus. Again, maybe Jay Russell wasn't the first one to see him, but 
clearly he's leaving the crowd to go with Jairus. You know, if I'm in the crowd and I'm, I'm hurt, injured, sick, seeking Jesus for something, and I'm like, oh, dang it, I missed my shot. He's going with him. Um, that's a big deal. Um, I, I don't know what the rest of that crowd that, that didn't get their needs met was thinking, but I can imagine. And it says, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Um, as he's walking through these people to Jairus' place, um, it's a crush of people. And, it, I don't know, we took uh, the kids to uh, Disneyland one year. We went on New Year's Eve, um, and it was crazy. I mean, wall-to-wall people, and you know, I'm tall enough that I could see over a lot of heads, and it was just people as far as you could see. And, uh, oh, man, in that moment, you kind of want to just crawl into a hole and get away. Um, um, but, but, you know, it, most of you, I'm sure, have had those experiences where you're just, you're shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with people. And there was a woman who had, a, had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. So we were on track with the story of Jairus and his daughter, and we were already moving towards the destination, moving towards the final outcome of what, what's going to happen there, and we got a break in the story. Something changes in what's going on. And I imagine, too, Jairus, and um, if anybody is with him or invested in that part of what's happening, it's probably unwelcome um, to some of those characters. Like, hey, wait, we just got interrupted on something that's of vital importance. This, this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. She's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. I know that there's a lot of us that have struggled with health issues for a long time, and that is difficult to say the least. Um, you know, you can put up with injury and pain and hurt for a little while. Um, have you ever had a man cold, guys, right? <laughs> Debilitating, right? <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, imagine something serious for 12 years, and I know most of you can. Um, that is hard. And, again, not, not a commentary on doctors, but um, Mark... Uh, addresses physicians a little bit different than Luke's gospel. Luke was a doctor, and so he treats them a little bit different. But um, it talks about um, many physicians seeing her and trying different things, and really at the end, she's worse. Um, Whether it's just their inability or their incompetence, they've left her with nothing. Um, I I looked up some of the, the remedies that they had, um, these are people with um, limited technology, and, and so they tried a number of things. Uh, with an issue like this, one of the remedies was to grind up the skull of a wolf uh, into dust and add it to uh, some sort of liquid or water and drink it. Yeah. I don't know how they thought that would help, but she's obviously gone through some remedies that they thought would work. Um, and in the end, her hope is broken for that. There's also the issue of uncleanness. Um, with her bleeding constantly, um, she is unclean in the Jewish culture. And uh, there's a prescription for um, how you have to separate yourself from that. Uh, but also, if you become unclean, how you get cleansed. So even people that she might come into contact with, have a ritual for how they have to deal with them just being nearby her. So she's probably often alone um, and with a lack of relationship. That unclean issue is a big one. Um, And I wonder if she's a little bit superstitious too. Um, Clearly she'd gotten the idea somewhere that that Jesus has power. She's probably witnessed some miracles or something like that. Um, but rather than interrupt him, um, and likely because of her situation, because she's unclean, she thinks that maybe the sneak-up approach and grabbing his clothes is going to heal her. And it goes on in, in verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned around turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, 
You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? A couple things here. Um, Whether her superstition is silly or not, um, she did touch his clothes and was was healed and felt the healing there. Um, But this this is one of those points where I, I take pause because there's so many times that Jesus asks questions. He asks a lot of questions, and most of them are in response to somebody else, and they're they're wise in a way we can't even fathom. And then he asks this this question, who touched my garments? And we know that that Jesus is um, fully God and fully man, and, and therefore has a knowledge beyond us. And it's hard to fathom that he wouldn't know um, that somebody's touched him. Um, he wouldn't know that his power went to somebody. So I wonder why, why they ask, why he asked that question, as if he doesn't know, or as if he doesn't know. Um, but I do know that in everything that Jesus does, he has a purpose. And then you have the disciples there. Um, that still haven't learned their their lesson from the last episode when uh, they were crossing uh, the Sea of Galilee and and the the storm was up and and he calmed the storm and they were freaked out and he asked them, do you still have no faith? They haven't learned from that yet. And uh, he asks the question, who touched my garments? And I, I don't know, they're probably not as... Uh, as strange as me, but uh, I, I hear this in a, a kind of a mocking voice almost. Come on, all these people around and you're asking who touched you? Uh, everybody. Uh, but the disciples show they haven't learned and um, they show that they still don't fully grasp the faith thing from Jesus. They don't have faith that he's asking a question for a purpose. Verse 33 But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The woman is healed, um, and and Jesus takes this opportunity of asking, who touched my garments? Not not because he doesn't know, but I'm sure that woman went up in secrecy to be healed and wanted to slink off in secrecy. And instead, he shines a light on the episode and, and wants to reveal what, to, what, what exactly has happened there. And she responds. She comes forward, um, and this is like being called on in class, right? Um, like, shoot, I didn't even have my hand up. Um, he calls her out, and she comes forward in fear and trembling and falls down before him and tells him the whole story. Now, she's not telling Jesus something that he doesn't know. Um, this is like the way we pray or some of the reasons for us uh, talking to God. It's not because he doesn't know what we're thinking. It's not because he doesn't know what are, what's in our hearts, but he wants us to know that we know and communicate that to him. And so he's having this, this woman share the story, the whole truth, her whole testimony, not for Jesus' benefit, but so that she knows the truth of what happened and so that the entire crowd knows the truth of what happened. He brings this woman forward to add testimony to her healing and so that she and the crowd knows that she was saved or how she was saved. You see, Jesus already knows the details. It's, not, it, it's for her own benefit to see the truth as well as for the disciples and the onlookers. So she, she lays out the whole story and they now know. And I'm sure probably aren't totally pleased by it. All the people that have crushed around her as well are like, oh, yuck, she's unclean. But is she? She's not. Um, and we see Jesus dealing with this unclean issue where he almost bypasses it because of his healing. She's not unclean anymore. There is no prescription for how to get clean because she is there. Um, no harm, no foul. Jesus goes on. He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Um, he calls her daughter. And as we're reading this, we think, oh, well, of course, Jesus loves everybody, and so he'd call her daughter. Um, it is an endearing term, but this is the only, record, only recorded use of him calling a woman daughter in the entire 
entirety of the Gospels. And I think he does it to show his compassion and his closeness. And it piggybacks with events to come um, in the story. It shows his intimacy with people um, and his love for them. But in this, there's also a question that I have too. Um, it's, it, the issue of faith. He talks about her faith. Your faith has made you well. What faith made her well? Uh, this term, made you well, or, or um, your faith has healed you, uh, that, that, that term for made you well or healed is the same, as the Greek, same in the Greek as saved. And so it can be read a, a couple of different ways. Um, it's not just that she believed Jesus was capable, because even Jesus' enemies knew what he was capable of. Uh, we've read that before in Mark. But it's that her faith in him made her well. Her faith in him has saved her. So as we're going through this, we get, we get caught up into this next story that's an interruption of the first um, and this interruption isn't just happenstance. Jesus, it didn't take Jesus by surprise. Um, again, there's, there's purpose for these things. And as we're talking about divine interruptions, I know I have to ask myself, am I open to God to interrupt my plan with his? I know that for me, I don't often appreciate it, and I don't often appreciate the purpose that he has behind it. Um, just a silly little segue, um, uh, just to kind of symbolize this. Um, uh, our oven went out at my house uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, we have this double oven that Lisa and I have loved. Um, it's a standalone oven range, so it's not one of the wall ovens, but it's got two ovens in it instead of one. Um, the top one is, is smaller and the bottom one is bigger. So you can still cook a turkey and stuff, but if you're wanting to do quick stuff or you have multiple things for four boys, boy, that really, really helps out. And we've had some issues with it um, the last year, and it just totally went kaput this last uh, week and a half ago. So with that, um, did you know that ovens are really expensive? Um, so we don't, we don't have gobs of money just hanging around, so we thought, okay, um, we want to get that thing replaced because it's great for us having the double ovens. We like that model. We're going to get another one, um, but it's going to take us a couple months to get there. So um, we either need to fill that gap with something that's kind of a throwaway that, that we can get a hold of, or we start looking for used ones. And um, did you know used ovens are really expensive? <laughs> Um, so we've been looking on uh, like Facebook Marketplace and stuff, um, and uh, the used ones are like six hundred, seven hundred dollars. We're thinking, geez, um, we've seen a couple of them that matched our, our, our likes, and it's just hard to pull the trigger on that. I have this value thing in my head of what stuff is worth, not actually the value, but what I'd pay for it, and it never matches reality. You know, like I'd pay fifty bucks, but. Um, <laughs> So um, anyway, we're looking for these ovens, and one pops up. I, I, I'm not the swiftest in keeping up with these things. Um, I have a job, you know. Um, but I found one that had just been posted like an hour or two before, um, and it was exactly what we wanted, and it was $75. I was like, heck, yes. Got a hold of her. Um, like, does this thing work? Is this just uh, the, the outside shell and there's no guts inside? And she's like, nope, I just want to get rid of it. 75 bucks. I was like, dang, we're there. She didn't respond. Didn't respond. And didn't respond. And then, like, later that night, because I was like, I will drive up there right now and get this thing. She posted it. It was sold. I'm like, dang it. I, I'm sure that I was one of the first people. And, yeah, I was bummed out. So in just talking about this episode with Lisa, because we've been looking since then, and there's no more $75 ovens out there. Um, she's like, you know, I was praying about this oven and how much we needed this because, let's face it, every five minutes we're like, hey, let's have, oh, we don't have an oven. Oh, you know what sounds good right now? Oh, my wife, uh, never mind. I was going to 
All right. My wife has the thing about oven-baked stuff. You can't microwave stuff. You have to oven-bake it because it tastes better. I don't think she really knows, but anyway. That's a glimpse into my life. Um, anyway, so we were talking about this. She's like, I, I was praying for this oven, and and you know, God knows our need, and I was sure that we were going to get that, and I was actually kind of devastated when it didn't happen. Now, keep in mind, I understand we're talking about an oven. This is first world problems, right? That that it just in in light of the scripture here that we're talking about, um, this is insignificant. But it was a big deal, and and she was devastated, and she said, you know, I, I felt God impressing on me um, in response to my prayer that. Um, I was being really selfish and that I was focusing on my need and didn't even think that God may have provided that for somebody else's need that was greater than ours. Um, and it's, again, it's such a stupid little thing, but that's a, a kind of a rude awakening when you get that slap, like, ah, dang it. Actually, I said crap in first service. Um, so I feel like I've got to say it here too. Crap. Um, you know, we miss that um, in God's plan, even for something as stupid as an oven. So I, I throw that in there because um, this is part of, again, my thought process with kind of what's going on here, is this, this interruption happened um, in the midst of what we would say was an imminent need. And God, J- Jesus stopped and took the time for something that we'd rank a little bit lower, right? Um, sure that thing is that, that thing she's going through is serious but she's been with that for 12 years she could probably wait until after he heals Jairus' daughter but he didn't why did he do that someone else's need may outweigh our need or our comfort but he does he heals her and I'm sure that she is absolutely rejoicing inside the end of her suffering but in spite of the miracle there um, there's still a profound consequence to that delay. And even with that, it opens the door to an even greater miracle. While he was sta- still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. I'm sure from Jairus' perspective, he's probably not just as simple as tapping his foot, thinking, okay, how long is this going to take? I mean, they're on their way to his beloved daughter that he's willing to sacrifice everything for. I'm sure that he's going through multiple reactions on finding out that she died. Anger, grief, sorrow, sadness. He wasn't there. And... I'm sure he has that hope torn out of him. But Jesus gives him an encouragement to be faithful. Don't be afraid. Believe. And I take that encouragement toward faith in the same way that he did for the woman. Um, Because Jesus could choose to heal his daughter at this point or not. But I think that faith is, have faith in me. So they travel on together, and uh, in spite of whatever's going on in Jairus' head and heart, um, he goes with them. And it doesn't record much that's happening there, but again, if it was me, I'm probably hoping against hope. I'm thinking maybe that message got passed to some messengers, and when it gets to me, it's muddled. Maybe she's not really dead. Maybe they were mistaken. And they get there, and their arrival confirms Jairus' fears. Mourners were already there, and they were about their business. Now, um, just a weird little thing. Um, in um, the Hebrew culture right now, r- right at this time, um, it was customary to hire a mourner uh, if you had someone die. So even somebody with very little means was obligated to bring in a mourner that would weep, wail, clap hands, um, and, and do the things that, that mourners were uh, supposed to do at that time. Um, and because of Jairus' position, his, his position in the community, um, his knowledge of other people, 
he probably would have been uh, obligated to bring in quite a crowd of mourners. So when they come in, this isn't just friends and family, although I'm sure there was there as well, um, but there's this crowd of mourners there already going about their business. Um, they are hired hands, though. So he addresses them. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, it's a little different for us nowadays. Um, we've all been touched by death, death of a loved one. Um, but for many of us, death is so antiseptic, it's, it, it's taken care of by professionals that we may have never even seen a dead person. Um, it wasn't like that back then. They were associated with death much more closely. Uh, and I'm not saying that they were advanced enough to be able to tell the difference between somebody that was mostly dead um, and had... Um, you know, paralysis or some of those kinds of things. Clearly, they made mistakes, um, and we know about that. But for the most part, they knew death, and they know, knew what somebody looked like when they died. Which makes it all the, the more interesting why Jesus does this. Um, they know what a dead person looks like. They know she's dead. They know they called for the mourners, and here's this guy that comes in and says, she's only sleeping. And they laugh at him. Again, these, these people are, are detached unemotionally from the situation. So why did Jesus say she was just asleep when she clearly wasn't? The Gospel of Luke um, makes it very clear that she was actually deceased uh, in, this, in that version of this story. So why would he say that? Pause on it. We'll come back to that and address that with kind of the next challenging thing that Jesus says. So he goes into the little girl, sends all the mourners away, and he takes her by the hand and says to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And this is another one of those moments. Um, he had just taken an, an intimate moment with uh, the woman who had been hemorrhaging and calls her daughter and cares about her. And we see the same thing reflected here. Little girl, get up. Um, I, I imagine that in the time before she was sick, that's how her parents would wake her up in the morning. Little girl, get up. And Jesus takes that on as well. Just that in that, in that tender moment, calls the girl um, to bring her back. And, you know, in something interesting here, um, it dispels any superstition about her being a spirit or ghost. Um, but it also um, shows Jesus' compassion for all things human. He, he tells them not to forget to give her food. But as I look at this, this just this little episode right here, I think, man, the parents were probably rejoicing right? Hope against hope, and the most unbelievable thing happens. They were able to get to Jesus. They were able to get distracted and, and bypassed, and then they came back to it. She was gone, but then she's back. Um, they're probably just on cloud nine. But then I think, bummer for the girl. She just got sucked out of paradise and has to go through her teen years anyway. Some of that is, a, you know, is funny, but, but seriously, though, I wonder about some of the folks that, that Jesus raised from the dead. Like, oh, that kind of stinks for them. Um, they had to leave something amazing for some of the harshness and suffering we have. But a little bit like that, that uh, silly story about our oven, um, Jesus clearly knows that it's important enough to bring her back out of that, um, that it makes it necessary. And it, it says, it shares their reaction. They were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Jesus admonishes them, don't tell anyone what happened. 
And again, I put myself in this, in this situation, and I think, well, they're not going to be able to hide that. He just walked through a crowd of mourners into where there's a dead girl, and they're going to probably see her around town, you know? And, and part of it, I wonder if this is just a matter of Jesus' perspective of time, too, that, that his understanding of death and finality is different than ours. You know, we see the death of this 12-year-old girl as an end point where, in God's perspective, she's just sleeping. We can call her back at any time. I don't know if that's it, uh, but I do know that they can't hide what happened, and so it makes me wonder... Why did he say that? Why did he, why did he tell them not to tell anybody about it? Um, and, and going back just a, a minute to, um, to when he walked in and, and they, they laughed at him, and I, I mentioned why would he say that in the first place? Why would he say she was only sleeping in the first place? Um, it certainly did. If he doesn't want them to share this information, it gives plausibility to the fact that she wasn't raised from the dead, right? He told them on the way in she was only sleeping, and now they see her around, and, oh, I guess he was right. Again, it still makes me wonder why, but um, let, let's, let's take a look at a, a scripture we talked about um, last week. Uh, just in contrasting this situation that we find ourselves in right now with Jesus telling them, don't share this, don't tell anybody what happened here, with what he said to the demoniac. He cast a legion of demons out of this young man, and, and the young man was so overcome that he was desperate to go with Jesus, pleaded with him, can I come with you? And Jesus said, no. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Just a day or days previous, he had sent somebody that he performed a miracle on out to go share with everybody that he knew what, what had happened. And here he says, don't tell anybody. As I ponder this, uh, there's, there's some things that come to my mind. Again, I think Jesus, I, I know that Jesus has a purpose for every action and statement that he makes. And in some of these recent episodes, like the demoniac, um, like the, the episode of, of crossing the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and calming the storm, um, there's a, a challenging faith element for people. He asks the disciples, do you still have no faith after the storm gets calmed? Um, people can't deal with the consequences of what happened um, with the, the casting out of demons um, and he char- charges the demoniac with sharing. Um, he asked a strange question to his disciples in this episode, who touched me? Um, and he pro- prohibits these people from sharing. Uh, I think that in each instance uh, uh, that I've just explained, there's an implication that his desire is faith. Um, Jesus' actions challenge and grow our faith in different ways depending on the heart and final outcome for each person. So he's got a whole group there um, as he's walking through with the, the hemorrhaging woman that they all come from different places. They all have different wants and needs and desires and they're there for different reasons. And, and Jesus is capable of dress, addressing all of those things with what he does. Um, and I think that his healing, his actions, his not healing some people... Um, address each one of those hard issues for people. Jesus has the entire context and sees things that we miss. Uh, As stated in previous stories, um, the man being lowered through the roof, um, Jesus knows the motivations of people. He knows their heart. And I think, therefore, he knows the method necessary to grow people's faith. And it is hard for us to grasp sometimes because we get focused on what we want or what we think we need. Um, but Jesus uses different methods to grow each and every one of us. 
For some, it's to see a miracle or to be healed. For some, it's to hear his teaching. For others, it's to miss out on healing. I think of all that crowd of people there, and the only recorded people that he heals are the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter. And there was a lot of people there that didn't get healed. For others, it's to have to deal with suffering or grieve a loved one while we're seeing healing and miracles around us. So in knowing those things, I'm faced with this question. Do I trust that he knows my heart? Do I trust that he knows my circumstance and knows how to challenge me um, in either my unbelief or in my faith in order to accomplish his purpose? I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up uh, as I close this out. Let's go back to where we started with the original questions. The first one was, who are you in this story? Who can you relate to in this story? I don't know if you've kept that in your mind or not, but um, there's a lot of different possible reactions and interactions happening there. where, Where do you fit? Is it a mixture? Is it one particular? And I asked you, how do you approach Jesus? I'm sure there were people there that didn't feel like they got their needs met, um, that showed up because they wanted something. And I know for me, I often have that perspective. I approach Jesus as a fix my problems. Do we simply want our life interruptions eliminated so we can go back to what we want? Do we say, I, have the, I believe you have the power to give me what I want? Or do we just say, I believe in you, I have faith in you? Or do we approach him with faith and following? Do our actions display the desire for his glory as much as our need? Do they put his power on display in a right heart before him? I, I told you these are the closing questions. It might have been a little bit of a stretch because I can't stop myself from adding some bonus questions for you. So just for fun, yay, bonus questions. Um, coming off of these episodes and understanding Jesus trying to address people's faith and how he does things and grow our faith, is our faith robust enough to handle God using negatives to grow our faith or the faith of others? Will your faith stand disasters, the wind and waves, spiritual attack, uh, temptation and persecution? Will your faith handle disease and loss? And then finally, those, those questions, you can boil it basically down to one. My agenda or his? We talk about this a lot, but I know this is where I keep coming back to in my walk. Would you pray with me? Father, it's not a new message. Um, I know that I hear this over and over and over from the pulpit. I, I see it in your word. And yet it's still a struggle for me to let go of my will and, and embrace yours. Um, Lord, you, you help us provide, sorry, you help provide us faith. And uh, Lord, I just pray for all of us, uh, but me in particular, I pray for a willingness uh, to grow my faith. Um, Lord, I pray for opportunities to cooperate with your spirit. Um, those ways that you challenge us, that you transform us. Um, I pray that you would help grow us in a reliance on you. Uh, and I pray, Lord, that through the episodes you take us through, that um, you wouldn't, that we wouldn't be the ones to be glorified um, in the things that we've done, or even the faith that we might have, uh, Lord. But you would be glorified and honored. So we lift all these things up to you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.